0: Welcome to the Atlantic Council Events Podcast. The Atlantic Council serves the global community by bringing together world leaders, foreign policy experts, and great thinkers to shape today's policy choices and navigate the global challenges of the 21st century. On May 2nd, 2016, the Atlantic Council hosted its flagship annual conference, the Global Strategy Forum. In the first panel of the day, panelists Arati Bakaber, Jennifer Shuba, Amy Zalman, and moderator Deborah Westfall discuss how a changing world affects America
1: all right we are really excited about uh this program over the next couple of days and and want to warmly welcome one and all uh, on behalf of fred kemp our president and ceo and the entire atlantic council family we want to extend a very warm welcome to in particular our speakers our board directors some of whom are here and our partners uh who are with us as well as friends from the u.s government and numerous foreign embassies we're just honored uh, by your presence, one and all. Thank you for being here with us. A special thanks to uh, our generous supporters uh, of this Global Strategy Forum, including Lock- uh, Lockheed Martin and Finn Mechanica. We're uh, deeply in your debt uh, for your commitment to uh, this work. There is no doubt that today's international order is alarmingly different from the one we knew 20, 10, and even five years ago. When you look at relationships between states and non-state actors, they're evolving at a shocking pace. Advances in technology are skyrocketing. The evolution of new sectors like biotech, cyber, and big data have replaced traditional security threats at the forefront of today's strategic climate. And more often than not, we see cases of sectarian violence and border skirmishes dominate the global stage. So the driving theme for this forum is that the world is changing in ways that require us to rethink how we navigate global challenges and rising uncertainty. With events evolving at such a rapid pace, our government structures and processes are increasingly dated and disconnected. The conference is taking a novel approach in terms of speakers, formats, and focus. The speakers with us today represent a diverse set of experts from a broad range of countries, fields of study, and generations. The formats are intended to stimulate imagination, thinking, and action, rather than provide more academic analogies of topics. The focus, of course, is on change. Over the course of the day, subject matter experts from the worlds of defense, filmmaking, literature, cyber, strategic foresight, and foreign policy will come together to discuss strategic thinking in their respective domains. Going forward, it will be far more beneficial for different sectors to work together in today's interconnected world than it will be for them to work individually. That is the key to successful strategic thinking. Now this forum is a culmination of the Council's work on strategy that we've been injecting into the work of our 10 programs and centers. There are a number of organizations around Washington that do strategy, but the Council's unique approach is embedding the conversation on strategy across a diverse set of issues that sets us apart as one of the leaders in this crucial conversation. The hub of our strategy work across the Atlantic Council is the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security, whose aim is to reinvigorate a substantive and constructive public dialogue on U.S. national security and provide a reliable source of new thinking. Our discussions throughout the forum will focus on three major themes. The first theme is strategic foresight. As I just mentioned a moment ago, everyone is aware that the world is becoming more complex, dynamic, and interconnected than ever before. It's absolutely critical to identify key global trends in order to avoid strategic shocks, as well as look for opportunities amidst continuous change. The second theme will focus on strategic objectives and challenges and opportunities for the United States. In today's rapidly changing environment, approaching problems in the same way they've always been approached simply will not work. And current problem-solving tools in government and in the private sector are becoming increasingly obsolete. The gap between how the world works and how institutions work is becoming wider, and the gap must be bridged quickly so as not to cause strategic failures. The third theme, will focus on strategic solutions. The panel's task will be to imagine new ways of thinking about global strategy that can lead to actionable solutions. We will also host a formal debate on America's role in the world. It is more important than ever to determine US strategy in today's climate, and it's our goal to elevate that conversation and to really get people thinking about the role the US should play. In addition to all of this on stage we hope that you will also take an opportunity to do a little bit of networking between sessions right outside. You'll see a lot of interesting panels and displays that I think uh, will intrigue you. The lunch session that will take place in the boardroom will feature prominent science fiction writer Ken Leo who will provide a micro talk on art and world building exploring how to use simple narrative to envision and create alternative worlds. Now as a simple guy from Utah, I'm still trying to get my head around that one, but I'm sure it will be very interesting. As part of the Atlantic Council's newly launched Art of the Future project, director of the project August Cole is hosting a series of exhibits right here in our lobby. From book signings, to an art presentation, to a cognitively focused exercise designed to use different forms of art to frame the future. And for those of you who aren't familiar with our Art of the Future project, it is a truly unique endeavor that aims to engage the creative minds in Los Angeles and Silicon Valley to provide unique solutions to today's challenges. August Cole will aim to draw on each of these themes touched upon throughout the day by moderating our concluding session with Deputy Secretary of Defense Bob Work. Max Brooks and Ken Leo our two prominent authors here today will also be selling their books in the lobby between 12.30 and 2.30. Finally, we've organized an interactive session in the lobby for participants of the forum to cast votes on your vision of America's role in the world. I encourage you all to take part in this and stay tuned on social media for the announcement of the most voted on role Let me also remind you that the sessions throughout the day are on the record and being streamed online. For those of you on social media, please follow along using the hashtag ACStrategy. I also want to announce that one of our esteemed speakers, Jasmine El-Gamal, an aspiring documentary filmmaker, has what they call taken over, essentially, the Atlantic Council's Instagram account We hope that you enjoy seeing the events over the next couple of days through her eyes. With that, please welcome, and I'd like to turn the stage over to the director of our Brent Scowcroft Center's strategy initiative, Dan Chu, to introduce our first panel. And Dan, thank you for the great leadership you've shown in organizing today's event. Thank Thank you so very much, and enjoy the program.
2: So good morning, uh, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us on a somewhat gray Monday morning for the 2016 Global Strategy uh, Forum. We did this last year in 2015 as our inaugural uh, session, and I thought we hit an interesting tone with some new ideas and some new uh, participants, and I hope you'll find we've done that uh, again today. Uh, It's great for me to look out into the audience and see a lot of familiar faces, but it's even better for me uh, to look out into the audience and see a lot of new faces. Thank you for joining us here at the Atlantic Council. Uh, This is exactly what this is about uh, in terms of the Global Strategy Forum. We are very much trying to reach out to new voices, new participants, looking for new ideas uh, as to to address what uh, Governor Huntsman laid out as uh, a rapidly changing world. We really think looking forward rather than looking for historic analogies is something that. that really intellectually needs to be done more of uh, in this town in particular, and we hope that we're doing this uh, today. For those of you online, we hope that you will chime in uh, as well. We are very much monitoring our social media feeds and would like to include you uh, as part of the audience uh, as well, and we hope to hear from you. In particular, because we think to do this new ideas, new voices thing right, we also have to do, reach out to a number of different communities. So we're really emphasizing, hopefully you will see today, a very interdisciplinary approach approach uh, to thinking about strategy, a very international approach to thinking about strategy, and frankly a very intergenerational approach to thinking about uh, strategy as well. So hopefully as I see friends and hopefully new friends in the audience, you will see on our agenda names that you know, names that you don't know. And what I really hope you'll come away from this conference with uh, is a sense of not only hearing some exciting ideas from folks who are leading in the field today but some exciting new ideas from folks who I think you'll see leading in the field uh, tomorrow, and that's really what this conference is about. If you think about, so normally on that big screen out there, as Governor Huntsman mentioned, now we've got some great artwork and some displays, and I hope you all will take some time uh, to take a look at that. But normally on that big screen out there, we have one of the cable news networks with their ticker screen uh, crawls uh, across the bottom and breaking news every uh, five minutes. And you all know that these days, uh, that is pretty much what's been consuming, particularly the political discourse uh, of the day. There just seem to be crises erupting uh, everywhere. It seems rather chaotic. Uh, everybody is jumping from one thing to the next and looking for that longer-term vision. Unfortunately, at least in my opinion, mostly they're looking for the one thing that they can focus on next, the one thing that helps them to get beyond uh, the crazy ticker uh, crawling across the bottom of the screen uh, on the cable news. I think one of the things that you will hear today is that it's very hard actually to decide that there's only one thing to look at. The hard part, the real one thing to look at is everything. It's all of these things together that are really a challenge. So that's why we pulled together Together, this session for you, starting with looking forward. And this first panel will really be about this strategic foresight and looking forward piece. So we get a sense of what those trends are out there that help us better understand what the everything uh, is. Our second panel today is about strategic challenges and opportunities, because unfortunately we have a tendency, uh, particularly in this town and and with my defense background, particularly in my career, for just looking at the bad things and really just focusing on all the bad things we need to worry about. Which of course means we miss opportunities and the ability to try and shape or make things better uh, in the future. So that'll be the second panel that we have. And then the third panel we have is going to be really about thinking differently about how, what to do about that, how to deal with that. So rather than using tools that, frankly, and methodologies that were developed decades ago for dealing with a world of decades ago, really trying to think creatively about how uh, to address these problems today and, more importantly, uh, in the future. In between, we've got a great uh, debate for you with uh, David Rothkoff and Corey Shockey on America's role in the world. Uh, There'll be some chances for you to vote before and after uh, the debate, so we'll see how how good a job they did. You can kind of vote on their performances. Uh, I'm sure they'll like that I said that. Uh, And uh, we're really looking forward to a a lively discussion. That includes all of you here uh, in the audience, so please, please participate. Uh, We've geared this uh, for that. So with that in mind, hopefully setting the stage for you, uh, uh, kind of literally and figuratively uh, I'd like to introduce uh, the first panel on strategic foresight again I think you will hear names you know names you may not know yet but I'm pretty sure uh, you will soon starting with a name uh, that I've come to know quite well and had the real privilege and honor uh, to have some opportunity to work with uh, Dr. Arthi Prabhakar the director of the Defense Advanced Research uh, Program DARPA uh, sorry program agency Projects, agency, I'm sorry. I should know that. Um, And I'm so thrilled that she's here uh, with us, not just because I've had a chance to work with her in the past and been really uh, inspired by the work uh, and the visions that she's had, but because she has had an amazing career, both in government and out of government, thinking about and working with technology, science, the private sector vision of that, and the government uh, vision of that. And I think that's really, really critical uh, as we think going forward, really understanding that broad picture and not just the things government is investing in or already, in, already spending on in terms of programmatics, but really the much broader conception uh, of what's out there and how government and the private sector uh, can work together. We also have uh, Professor Jennifer Shuba, who is an assistant professor at Rhodes College in the International Studies uh, program, uh, but uh, to me has always been one of the preeminent de- demographers uh, in the country, thinking very hard about long term trends uh, in demographics uh, around the world. And Jennifer is always the one uh, who corrects me when I use the often used uh, phrase, uh, demography is destiny, which on the one hand is a great catchphrase for what Jennifer does, but Jennifer is going to do a great job explaining why demography is a critical human component to thinking about the future, but is not necessarily destiny, and we need to think about it uh, appropriately. Jennifer has a great new book out called The Future Face of War, Population and National Security, where she uh, analyzes demography, demographic trends, and its role uh, in the future uh, face of war. Uh, So we've got a tech piece, we've got a human piece, and we've got Amy Zalman here as well, who is really going to try and help pull this together by thinking uh, more broadly about what this means about thinking about the future and talk to us a little bit about how she thinks about the future. Uh, Amy uh, has uh, nearly 20 years of experience uh, as an expert in strategic foresight, global security, uh, and global and strategic communications. In 2010, she founded the National, uh, sorry, the Strategic Narrative Institute, uh, which helps build. Uh, strategists, uh, vanguard thinkers, uh, and uh, to assess and chart courses through the world's ever-changing environment. And you can tell by that job description I think she fits in perfectly uh, with this particular group, so I'm particularly glad uh, to have her to pull this uh, all together. Likewise, couldn't think of a better moderator uh, to have for this particular panel uh, than Deborah Westfall. Uh, Deborah Westfall is the CEO of Toffler Associates. Many of you may be uh, familiar with the name Toffler and the thinking uh, about the future that Toffler Associates has uh, not only been famous for, and continues to be famous for, but frankly, uh, for many of us, uh, put on the map as kind of a discipline and something to think about. So we're very glad uh, that Deborah is here uh, and can help pull this together, uh, not only in terms of the panel's thinking, uh, but in terms of the audience's thinking, and really engage you all in terms uh, of thinking about the future uh, more creatively and constructively. So, with that, I've clearly talked too much. I'm going to hand over to Arthi and uh, let's get going. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Thank you so much for coming. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right.
3: All right. Good morning, everybody. How's everyone? Good morning. Let's see. We'll wait for my slide. They're bringing it up. I the mic. It's great to be here with everybody today. Uh, and I especially want to thank the Atlantic Council for posing what I think <coughs> is, is the most interesting question we could be asking at this moment, uh, this question about America's changing role as the world around us shifts in so many interesting ways. Um, Many of you know DARPA, you know that our mission at DARPA is to make the pivotal early investments in breakthrough technologies for national security. So I want to share a perspective from the crossroads where we sit. Uh, And let's start with national security. Looking around this room, you all know exactly what's happening in the world of national security. Uh, We live in a time in which China is building airstrips on tiny islands and disputed waters, a time when Russia is orchestrating propaganda and attacks on infrastructure along with its little green men, a time when violent extremists around the world have access through social media to an unprecedented number of people, uh, discontented people in all different corners of the world. And bizarrely, we live in a time in which a nation state launched a cyber attack against a media company because of this sterling example of American culture. And you know all of those together are some of the pointers to the future of national security. And that's what informs our work at DARPA. But what inspires us at DARPA, of course, is technology. So let me take a couple of minutes and tell you about what's happening around the world uh, with the investments in research and development, the, the driver behind technology today. When you look at global spending in R&D, the first thing you'll notice in this chart is that every growing nation has significantly expanded its R&D spending uh, over the last many decades. That's really a universal trend for anyone who's going forward into the future. The other thing you'll notice is that there was a time, of course, an extended period of time starting after the Second World War, when the US was the dominant player around the world. And we enjoyed that very much. That's not the world we live in anymore. And I think this chart really underscores that the US is still in a very, very strong position in R&D. What's different is we're no longer alone. Now, this is really good for the world because the, these investments are critical to propelling economies forward, to lifting people out of poverty, to connecting us in ways that we've never been connected before that we really couldn't have even imagined a couple of generations ago. But while all that goodness is happening in the world, of course, this also demands fresh thinking here at home about how, we're, how we operate in this kind of world. So. Let's look at what's happening inside the United States, and there's some important trends going on here as well. If you look at US spending on R&D in that red curve, you see the intensification of our innovation economy as private sector spending on R&D has grown dramatically faster than GDP has grown. And I think that's, again, tremendous news. Federal R&D spending has not kept up with GDP over these decades, but it remains critically important first for government's missions, like national security. So all the new military systems that we're going to be relying on have to come out of that share of R&D. But the federal government also plays a second role, and that is to lay a foundation of basic research that is critical for our public needs, but it's also what fuels that private growth, that private investment in R&D continues to be, as you would expect, dominated by product development. And that basic research component continues to be critically important that the federal government play its role. Now, those are some facts and figures. What's behind these numbers is a fluid and really vibrant ecosystem with research and technology and people uh, who flow from universities and companies uh, to government labs to other labs. And that rich ecosystem, I believe, is one part of the answer to this question about how America will play its role in the future. What I want to do is walk you through uh, what's happening in one particular technology area. This is only one of the many things that we're doing at DARPA, one of the many things that's happening in this huge ecosystem of research and development and new technologies. But it's one that I think brings some of these ideas to life. And it's the area of artificial intelligence. So if you roll the clock back many decades, uh, DARPA in the early years of artificial intelligence was making some of the earliest investments in expert systems. And these technologies now are embedded in commercial and military applications of all different sorts. We don't even call it AI anymore because it's just sort of like we take it for granted now. Uh, And something different, though, is happening today in artificial intelligence. Because today, when you say that term, people think not about this. But about this. And I think that Ava from Ex Machina or Samantha from her or the Terminator or the discussions about a technological singularity, to me in many ways this feels like an extrapolation from that eerie sense that we're getting as we encounter this new generation of artificial intelligence in our everyday lives. If you've ever gone on Facebook and found that a picture that you didn't even know someone had taken has now popped up and an algorithm has identified your face in it. Or if you've ever typed what seemed like a really obscure thing into a search engine and before you could even start searching for it, it completes. If you think about those kinds of things that are going on, I think that's one of the reasons that we're having this, this moment of, of thinking about AI exploding before us. But she's still in the realm of Hollywood. Let's actually back up and talk about what's really happening in artificial intelligence. And if you roll the clock back now just one decade or so, uh, you'll find at that time, DARPA was making some of the pivotal early investments in what now has become a second wave of artificial intelligence. And it's a wave that is about machines that learn. It's been fueled by new GPU architectures, by new algorithms, and especially by the vastness of data that's available for these systems to train on. And that's behind face recognition like on Facebook. Uh, It's behind things like uh, the autonomous trading that you see on Wall Street. It's behind technologies like the self-driving car, which by the way has its roots back in a couple of challenges that DARPA did a decade ago to try to have vehicles that would drive by themselves. If you want to find the people who won and came in second and came in third, you will find them today at places like Google and other companies who are taking that technology forward as self-driving cars today commercially. So at DARPA today, when we look at what's happening with artificial intelligence, we see something that is very, very powerful, very valuable for military applications, but we also see a technology that is still quite fundamentally limited. And let me tell you a little bit about both of those. Um, First of all, where, where it works well, we're finding amazing new applications for Uh, artificial intelligence. This is the Sea Hunter, it's a a ship that we christened just a few weeks ago. This is a ship designed to be able to leave from the pier and navigate by itself across the seas without a single sailor on board and the way that it uh, implements collision avoidance and, and, uh, and is able to do that autonomously is by implementing many of the technologies of artificial intelligence. This is going to open up some amazing new opportunities for the Navy as it thinks about how to exercise influence over over the vast expanses of the oceans. Uh, In a very different realm. We're working on pointer technology too. Uh, in a very different realm, we're harnessing artificial intelligence to build machine learning systems that will fly onboard aircraft like this. And the reason for that is that we need a way today to deal with the changes that are happening on the ground. Today our aircraft go out, they're loaded up with a set of jamming profiles that allow them, when they're pinged by an adversary radar, they have a library of jamming profiles that they can transmit to protect themselves. Uh, Today when they go out, though, they're finding that they're getting pinged by radar signals that we've never encountered before. And it's just one reflection of how rapidly technology is changing in the world. When that happens today, it can be weeks to months to literally years before they're able to get the kind of protection that they need against that new radio signal. With this advance in machine learning, with these systems on board, what we'll have for these aircraft is the ability to scan the radio spectrum in real time to determine what the adversary's radar is doing, and then right there on the spot create a jamming profile that will protect those aircraft in real time, in the battle space, even when the world around them is changing. And I think that's a great example of using AI in a a realm that's not really something people are working on or thinking about commercially. But it's actually only the beginning of thinking about machine learning and the radio spectrum. Today when, we, uh, when, we fig- when we're divvying up the spectrum to, to meet all the requirements in DOD for radar, for communications, for electronic warfare, and then of course this exploding demand in our consumer and our commercial lives uh, fueled by wireless data uh, devices that we already have and then accelerating today as the Internet of Things starts blossoming. This is what we've been doing and we know that this simply won't cut it for the kind of explosive demand that's coming. And that's why DARPA just announced our next big grand challenge. It's called the Spectrum Collaboration Challenge and it will be a competition in which human teams will use radio networks that have embedded machine intelligence uh, that allows them to both compete to use a fixed band of spectrum but also collaborate to maximize the usage of that spectrum and get many times more data out of a fixed band of spectrum than we can do by doing this. That's what's going to give us a shot at keeping up with this kind of explosive demand for wireless data. So this is how this ecosystem works. We sparked some of this early AI research, many of the people whom we funded over the many decades have gone off into commercial companies. We're seeing this burgeoning of commercial applications for AI. At DARPA, we're harvesting that research and some of that commercial technology for national security needs. As we apply AI to whole new fields like spectrum, we're creating a set of opportunities for military needs, something that's critical for DOD, but in the process, we're also gonna lay the groundwork for a next generation of new commercial opportunities in that application space. And I think this uh, is a great example of the richness of this ecosystem that we have in the United States today. Now, I've been talking a lot about the power of this generation of AI. Let me make sure I tell you a little bit about the limitations as well because um, While this technology has gotten very, very capable, let me give you one specific example from the world of machine learning for image understanding. Today we're able to build systems, uh, people who are building these systems and training them on lots and lots of data. These systems can now automatically identify what's happening in an image like this. And they get very, very good results. In fact, the best of these systems are statistically better than humans at identifying images. The problem is that when they're wrong, They are wrong in ways that no human would ever be wrong. And I think this is a a critically important caution about where and how we will use this generation of artificial intelligence. Now, of course, at DARPA, when we see those limitations, we think, gee, that's, the next, that's going to be the next opportunity to drive the technology forward. And so today, the other thing that we're doing, in addition to applying the first and second waves of AI, is, is making the investments that we hope will create that third wave of artificial intelligence, in which machines can explain themselves to us and tell us what their limitations are, in which they can help us build causal models of what's happening in the world, not just correlations, but understanding causality. Uh, in which they start learning how to take what they've learned in one domain and use it in different domains, something that they can't really do at all today. And finally, a new generation of technology in which machines start communicating with us in radically different ways. So this is a view into the future of where this technology is going, but it is rooted in this concept from the past. Licklider was a pivotal figure in the information revolution of the last century. Uh, And he wrote this paper about, envisioned human machine symbiosis in 1960. A few years later, he spent a slice of his career as an office director at DARPA, then ARPA. The work he did then uh, inspired the work in the ARPANET, and now the internet. So this was someone who had an enormous impact on uh, the shape of the information world that we live in today. And I love to think about Licklider in 1960 in a world in which we communicated with computers through punch cards He had a dream that was this big, and it's a dream that is so big that despite the enormous progress that we've made in 56 years, this dream is still out ahead of us. And I love to think about Licklider because that reminds me, every time I think about that early 60s and what he was dreaming about, it reminds me that an enduring American strength is this ability to dream a dream this big. And I think that that's uh, an important point to think about as we're talking about the subject at hand today. So let me leave you with this thought. Uh, As we think about the answer to this question about America's role in a changing world, that's a question that's gonna demand many, many answers. But surely at the heart of that answer will be this idea of innovation, the idea of big ambitions, and the idea of taking risk to reach for those solutions. Thank you very much, and I look forward to the discussion. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. I am very pleased to be here today to talk with you about demographic change in the 21st century. And thanks, Dan, for that introduction and for giving a little preview of my main thesis, which is that demography is not destiny. Uh, But before I launch into that, it's finals time at Rhodes College where I teach, so I'm in the mood for a little test. So I'll ask you one question, and I just want you to think about the answer for yourself. What proportion of the world's population would you say currently lives outside the country in which they were born? So, in other words, what proportion of the world's population is migrants? Is it A, 20 to 22 percent, B, 10 to 11 percent, or C, 2 to 3 percent? If you answered C, you're correct. Just 2 to 3% of the world's population is migrants. But if we pay attention to the headlines today about the global refugee crisis, we would have a tendency to think that it is much bigger. But because it's actually been pretty steady for the last 50 years, at around 2 to 3% of the world population, I'm not going to focus on migration for this talk today. I'm gonna to focus on a different element, which is age structure. Now, if I were to have given a talk that called demographic change in the 20th century, it would have been a talk about exponential growth in global population. I have always been fascinated that it took from the beginning of time, the beginning of human history until the 1800s for Earth to have its first one billion people on the planet. But in the span of just 100 years, we went from 1.6 billion to 6.1 billion people. Now, the story of the 21st century is not one of exponential population growth. It's one of differential population growth, particularly the divide between the world's richest countries and the world's poorest countries. On average, there are about 237 babies born per minute in the world's least developed countries, but only 27 born per minute in developed countries. And this leads to really different situations on the ground. So if we were to go to the heart of Japan and walk through there, what would we see? We would likely see a lot of older people. Japan's median age is 46. That means that 50% of Japan's population is over the age of 46. If we were to go to the heart of Nigeria, what would we see? We'd see a lot of children. On the other end of the spectrum, Nigeria's median age is 18. So half of Nigeria's population is under the age of 18. Here's a different way for us to visually represent that. You may have seen these before. This is called a population tree on the right-hand side are females, on the left-hand side are males, and in ascending order through the middle by five-year increments are ages zero to 100. And in Japan today, the world's oldest country, 25% of the population is over the age of 65. Now, a lot of people have seen uh, these statistics and have made some predictions that Japan is facing some serious issues with paying for entitlements for people of older ages or continuing economic growth. But what I want you to take away is there's actually a lot that this does not show. Do you know what the average age of exit from the workforce in Japan is just by looking at this? No, you might could guess based on where I drew it, but you'd be guessing wrong. The average age of exit from the workforce in Japan is 71. You can't see that from this. Now, Japan is the oldest country in the world, but it's not the only old country. There are a couple of things I want you to notice from this. One is how much population aging will intensify in the next 20 years. I mean, part of what we're doing today and and through this workshop and this conference is thinking about long-term trends. And so in just 20 years, Japan's median age will be over 52 years. When I first started talking about population aging in the early 2000s, it was new, We'd never before had a population age structure like Japan's. But now it's not quite so new. Not only is it intensified, it used to just be about Japan and Western Europe. But I want you to notice the diversity in this list, the diversity in terms of geography, in terms of political systems and institutions, in terms of economic strength and culture. And that's something for us to pay attention to over the next 20 years. And that's actually where the bulk of my research is right now, is trying to understand how this diversity in aging states matters. Uh, Can we really use Japan and Western Europe as our models for understanding population aging in the 21st century? All right, so this is one side. Here's the other side. This is what Nigeria's population looks like. And you can see why we used to call these population pyramids. When you have a high total fertility rate, it's much broader at the bottom. And so over 2 thirds of Nigeria's population is under the age of 30. Just a glance at this, probably no surprise why political demographers have found some strong correlations between uh, difficulty governing in a society that is so young. And Nigeria is not even the world's youngest country. That title goes to Niger, where the median age is 14. So there are three things I want you to take away from this slide. One of them is how high total fertility rate still is in so many of the world's poorest countries. Demographers have been discussing a phenomenon called a stalled demographic transition. The demographic transition is going from high fertility and mortality to low fertility and mortality. And for some of the world's poorest countries, that transition seems to be stalled. It's really slowed down. and so we can see here, there are still a significant number of countries with very high uh, total fertility rates. That means that when we look out over the next 20 years, and actually even beyond, we still need to pay attention to tremendous population growth and very youthful populations in some of the world's youngest countries. I also hope that you'll notice some of the names of the countries on this list. Somalia, Democratic Republic of Congo, Uganda, Nigeria. These are all countries that are not necessarily known for being the world's freest open democracies with the most robust economic growth. And these things go hand in hand. Finally, I do want to point out that you don't need this astronomical fertility rate for a population to grow. Actually, a total fertility rate of just three children on average born to a woman in her lifetime means that each generation will be 50% larger than the preceding one. So again, if you want to talk about demographic change in the 21st century, you will be talking about both population aging and shrinking in some countries, but still tremendous growth and youthful populations in others. But what about the countries in the middle? This is where I think we can have some very interesting things to say that go against the grain. Classic country to start with is China. Doesn't look like either Japan or Nigeria. It looks somewhere in the middle and 68% of China's population is of working ages. But what you may be actually used to seeing about China is this, it seems that you can't pick up a publication on national defense or economics without hearing how China will be the first country in the world to grow old before they grow rich. And I say, be careful. And in fact, it was just this morning I woke up and kind of got on Twitter as I was trying to wake up and saw that War on the Rocks this morning, if anybody reads that, had a piece um, by somebody from the U.S. Army about China's demographics, meaning that it will constrain China's rise. And actually sat straight up, wait a minute, that may not be true. Again, what does this not show? Sure, China is aging, and we know this, absolutely. 36% of the population over age 60 by 2050, we can feel relatively secure about that. But what if China's average age of exit from the workforce is the same as Japan's in 2050? We'd need to change this box to show that only 20% of China's population then would be above 70. That's a lot different. You also can't tell from this that China only spends about 2.5% of its GDP on cash payments to people of older ages. Russia. This is another country where it's well known that Russia's population is shrinking by about 350,000 people a year. And I remember when I worked in the Pentagon in the early 2000s, people were very quick to write off Russia because of their dire demographics. Lots of publications about—excuse um, me—lots of publications about Russia's drunken population, or um, you know, concern about the incredible shrinking country. And in fact, even Secretary of Defense Robert Gates noted we didn't need to worry about Russia anymore because their demographics were going to be their destiny. But if we fast forward to today, we see certainly in 2014, 2015, Russia's leaders have decided that they would like to reallocate spending towards modernizing defense and actually increase the amount of money they're spending on defense even as the country shrinks and ages. They're also not afraid to project power beyond Russia's borders in the region and elsewhere, which is something we wouldn't have predicted from an aging and shrinking population. Finally, Russia actually has seen a modest turnaround in terms of its total fertility rate. Uh, That has crept up some, and that will help slow population aging in the future just a bit. Okay, so this is the C and this is the R. This is part of the BRICS, and I would say these two BRICS have a pretty solid foundation, but not so much the other ones. Some of the bricks have a really weak foundation, one of those is Brazil. Demographically speaking, Brazil is much younger than Russia or China. Russia and China's median age is about 36, 37, and in Brazil it's 31. But Brazil is aging rapidly. Their total fertility rate is 1.7 children born per woman. And so they know what's coming. It's no surprise to them. And yet, during her first term in office, Dilma Rousseff actually increased pension spending. Brazil spends a higher proportion of its GDP on pensions than does the world's oldest country, Japan. And whereas Japan's average age of exit from the workforce is 71, you know what it is in Brazil? 54. Very poor foundation to deal with population aging. The one missing, India. People like to speak about India and China in the same breath. Demographically, you shouldn't do that. Whereas literacy is nearly universal in China, That's absolutely not the case in India, where only 65% of Indian females are literate. We also don't really have examples where a country has seen tremendous economic growth without urbanizing, and India is far behind the global average of 54% urban at only 32%. And here in North America, we're over 80%. So we've got this gender disparity. We've got the rural-urban disparity there. We also have other kinds of geographic disparities in India. In some of the poor but populous states of the north in India, total fertility rate is over three children per woman still. So unless India can deal with some of these underlying issues, we don't, shouldn't expect them to deal with their demographic transition and their aging in the same way that China has. So what does all of this mean? I absolutely believe that if we want to talk about strategy, we have to look at population. And people are the foundation of a polity, of an economy, of a society, and so understanding demographic trends and their political, social, and economic implications are important. But if we just take these numbers at face value and try to make predictions based on those numbers, we will be wrong. We have to look at the forces in a society that amplify demographic trends, and the forces in society that dilute demographic trends. Some of those include political institutions, for example. And while I focused on age structure in my allotted time, we also need to ask questions about how a society deals with women, how they deal with economic migrants, how they deal with refugees, who's considered part of a society, and who's considered an outsider. And if we can have this kind of robust assessment of population, we can really understand demographic change in the 21st century. Thank you.
4: most significant strategic challenge facing the United States is not that we're falling behind, that we're in decline, even that the technological superiority that we once enjoyed is narrowing between us and our peers and adversaries. The strategic challenge that faces the United States is that the conditions for success are changing. That's why we look at trends, it's why we look at trends like technology and population because they tell us something about the conditions of the future and they tell us something about the conditions within which we need to think in order to be successful or to be competitive. As noted, already today the world order is changing, it has changed, it promises to change more. But our assumptions don't always change with them, we draw strong lines between the domestic and the international. Is the shooting in San Bernardino a domestic event or an international event? We draw strong lines still between the public and private sector, but look at how uh, public goods are distributed and ask whether those lines are still so strong. We know, we talk a lot about how transnational issues may be the largest we face. Uh, in the coming years. We have a deeply intertwined global economic, uh, financial system, uh, uh, conflicts, overrun borders, climate change, other issues are transnational. So how are we supposed to develop strong strategy in the context of such change? I'll have five ideas for you this morning. I'll explain all of them. Anticipatory narratives, developing a long now mindset, a readiness to think about our governmental structures, developing a strategic foresight capability, and uh, a small proposal uh, presented with humility to uh, senior leaders who are on their way out and no longer fed by this system. So, anticipatory metaphors. Um, Instead of looking at the future with curiosity and with uh, interest. And at the changing world order with curiosity and interest, we often look at it with fear. Why is this? Is there no way in which the United States could be successful in a radically different world? Don't we have the values and sustaining characteristics to succeed in a radically different world? I think most of us in the room would definitely answer yes. So our first and plausibly our deepest order of business when we think about strategy for the future is to think about the frames, the myths, the metaphors inside of which we place our reality. And by metaphor, myth, in this context, I mean um, this will be familiar. We find that we think in terms of the industrial age and in terms of its metaphors frequently and sometimes have not caught up, gaining territory It's a real thing, it's an action. There are technologies that support it, but it has also become a metaphor. So we start to talk in um, conflict about dominating narratives, which don't work like physical territory, but we still use that metaphor. That's just one. There are many others. We use a metaphor when we talk about the phases of war. Zero to five is not real. It's, It's a way of ordering reality. And the danger of not keeping up our myths and our metaphors with reality is that we could end up sort of framing reality, framing our ideas, our thoughts about what makes us successful over here while reality is over here and others are succeeding and failing in that reality. But we could go a step further. We could develop anticipatory metaphors. We can think about the conditions that my colleagues are talking about and others and think about what kinds of metaphors beyond even networks we're going to need in 50 years, and start working with those ideas now, maybe in the realm of fiction, um, so that when it comes time to set up processes and structures um, and systems, we are ready to do it. We could develop a long now mindset. Arguably, we are a, a country that likes to act. We like to do things, we like to go, we don't like to stand around and think. We grew out of a Europe that was old and slow and, and, and different, like to stand around and think. But we are in danger. We are drowning in a marketing language, a kind of unholy concoction of fear and speed that tells us that time is going fast, that we're accelerating, that the future's here, that we're in the future, that the future's you know, already behind us. We already lost it. we got to go faster. And that is uh, yes, but also no, because time is a perception. There is um, a wonderful organization in California, um, some, many of you may be familiar with it, called the Long Now Foundation. And a decade or so ago, a little bit more than that, they set up one project called the Clock of the Long Now. And it's a real thing. It's being built in the desert. And it is a very, very, very slow computer. Its basic unit of movement is 10,000 years. And the reason they're building it is to draw our attention to what they call the long now. That's a second in long now time. So it may be the case that in certain ways, the rate of change, particularly notable in technology, is changing, is, is speeding up. I get my mail now instead of in two days or in a week or in a month after it's come by steamship. And we may arrive at some version of a technological singularity in which there's a convergence and we can't see over the edge. But in other ways, time is a perception. And wouldn't it be fitting if we thought in the long now, in terms like centuries, which is, which is fitting for a nation. Um, and we would be on our way if we could do that to a certain form of resilience and resistance to shocks because we would be thinking in this long span. Should we perhaps be prepared to really rethink our structures, the way that our government is structured here at home, and I will admit to you that this thought comes out of um, a small anecdotal experience of my own, which is that I have floated from time to time um, the idea to friends, friends in the State Department and friends in the Department of Defense, what is not actually that radical an idea which is that in 50 or 75 years, maybe we won't have either of those departments, we'll have a Department of Foreign Affairs. And really that basically sees the world much the way that it is today, except that it, it accommodates for me two challenges we have now. One is that, right, these departments have problems working together because there are some systemic and legal things in between them, and the deeper issue is that we have a much wider and different array of instruments of power than we once had. And they don't fall neatly into what's called hard and soft or war and diplomacy. They are tied up with each other, they are communicative and instrumental so much of the time. That's what cyber is. So I've said this to my friends, and with um, respect to them, they have said to me, well, no, we couldn't do that. Like, where, where would I? I don't have a parking lot you know, space at the <laughs> Pentagon, and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't go there. Uh, so uh, we maybe, this may not be a good idea. Maybe not, this isn't the one. But should we not find a space where we can think you know, ideas like that that may take apart and put back together the structures that we have in government a little bit differently? And this leads me to my fourth proposal, which is that we need that space. Um, We need an apolitical space more than, even though this is fabulous, an hour or a day a year at the Atlantic Council to think and plan and research for the long term. So where is our United States Institute of Strategic Foresight, for example? And finally, to stay on this um, sort of uh, talk about structures, we you, um, in this context, talk a lot, it seems to me, these days, about millennials, um, what they need and those coming after them, both as a, a force out there in the world, but also as a workforce um, here at home, and what do they what do they need, what do they do, what do you need, and what do you do? Um, and uh, it seems to me that that lets those who have succeeded and are um, leaving the system off the hook a little bit, and in this long now sort of space that we're now in, I might propose that uh, a rethink of incentives that is sort of serious and collaborative by those who are no longer being fed by the system might be a good idea. Um, By incentives in this case, I mean that everybody who is doing well here in this space um, had a set of rules, implicit and explicit, that helped them perform. And they knew what to do and what not to do. And you may be looking behind you now and saying, wow, some of the people coming up behind me are, are, have great ideas. They are part of developing a strategic mindset. And they can't move as well as they should be because the structures that served me are no longer serving them. So if you take this seriously, find your peers before you shut the door behind you and, and start breaking some of that down. There are so many ideas in Washington in this context for what the future could look like um, and future visions. Some of those, mostly the fearful ones, tie us to the present and to the status quo in a way that is not healthy. So I leave you just with the question, what visions of the future could we elaborate that actually move us into a uh, productive space of change and preparation for future conditions. Thank you.
5: I suppose we're going back. Good morning. Wow, what a way to uh, to wake up on a Monday morning and and get this week kicked off. That uh, that was incredible. So. We have uh, a few minutes here to, to ask questions, and uh, I really want to get the audience participation here um, to, to, to talk to uh, these three very, very smart women. So I want start to start the question off. I was fascinated here um, around these uh, myths, beliefs, biases that, uh, that you spoke about, um, but really around the convergence of the people and the technology. And I want to I want to pull that a little bit because, you know, we talk about the people, we talk about the technology, we talk about the convergence in this human-machine convergence. What beliefs, myths, biases, assumptions do we have that we need to overcome as we think about the future?
3: That's a, <laughs> that's a good topic.
0: To dive in? Uh, no, uh, let's see. Well. I've, I think one of the the myths that I encounter most often has to do with population aging and technology. Um, There is, people commonly say that focus on cognitive decline in older ages, and so um, One of the reasons, although it's not the most important reason, but one of the reasons I hear people write off older countries in terms of economic growth is that, oh, a society full of older people will no longer be able to innovate, will no longer have these ideas. And whenever I hear that, I always turn it back to the person who's asking, and they typically tend to be someone who's older themselves, and I say, well, why are you here? If you don't have the ability to innovate, if you don't have anything to offer, then what are you doing here? And so I think it's unfair for us, just because there are cognitive declines in older ages, to say that a society is gonna be full of older people. So, you know, we always have the ability to innovate. We always have younger people. Um, Even the way we organize ourselves in terms of urban areas give us chances to bring diversity of ideas together that can overcome some of those age structure challenges.
3: Thank you for speaking up for old people. I really appreciate it. Um, You know, what your question triggered for me was, at DARPA, of course, the people I work with are all focused on technology. And one of the most delightful experiences of my last few years there is the fact that across everything we are doing, it seems to me, we are encountering this notion that it's really not gonna be just about the technology. We're, we're at a juncture where the most interesting things are going to be about how people use technology. And that, that ranges from the very pragmatic where we are rethinking how uh, you know, an air-tasking order gets put together in, 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 in the middle of a, a, a conflict scenario, at, all the way through the kinds of things I talked about with artificial intelligence, but then fully to the other end of the spectrum to the work that we're doing on neurotechnology, wor- work that began by trying to understand brain function to restore function for wounded warriors, whether it was understanding motor control and sensory input to help with prosthetics, or restoring active memory after it's been impaired after traumatic brain injury. But as we've done that work, of course, we're seeing ways that we could build a, a very different, a very intimate kind of connection directly to the human ner- nervous system and directly sometimes to the brain that allows us to think about, um, about a, a, a symbiosis between humans and machines. It's well beyond even the things that we we you know how we interact with with the technology today so th- that's not a tomorrow thing those I think those are longer-term dreams and long-term dreams are really important Amy thank you for that but but yeah I, th- <laughs> I just think that's that juncture of people and technology is the most exciting area today but isn't that the uh, isn't that the the race
5: I mean your, your slides uh, Jennifer about uh, Japan South Korea Singapore racing racing against this aging population problem spending um, a a bunch of money in technology um, more than the United States even in some cases um, in this this convergence here. Um, Isn't that, uh, you know, what what are the the global um, conditions here and ramifications, implications to to our national security?
0: Well, I would also caution us not to say, to, to phrase it that way that oh, look at how much money Japan is spending trying to overcome population aging. Look at it as an opportunity. Wow, look at how Japan has created so many new products, has really led the way in technology as they've been faced with this demographic issue. And so, I'm not trying to be Pollyanna about it, but we could, we should be careful not to just look at the downsides to this, but look at the opportunities. I mean, there are tremendous opportunities. If I have a dollar to invest in a stock, that's a really smart one to think about. We also know that in many aging societies, looking at uh, biotech, farm, et cetera, those are important areas that we could expect some economic growth.
5: So, Amy, what uh, your, your thoughts here in in the and uh, the biases and the beliefs and the metaphors of, of this convergence? <coughs>
4: Well, I think you've said I have nothing to add to the technology and the the demographics. Um, I raised, but then put down in my talk, this question of the zero to five, which has been on my mind lately, and actually ultimately engages um, technology, perhaps populations. Um, We don't think of that as a metaphor, but in fact it is, because if you have a numerical system that only goes up, that's the place you want to go, no matter what it is. Um, so an interjection there that um, metaphors are everywhere, structuring the way that we think about most of what we do.
5: Good. What about uh, cultural shifts? Um, we've got, uh, and what, what are the impacts um, on culture, and especially the global culture, and how those, those shifts might, or those power shifts, may occur? And, and what should we be thinking about from a national security perspective?
0: Well, I don't even know that I could say that there, what a global culture would look like, but I think from a cultural perspective, one of the things that uh, people who are interested in national security often focus on is migration. So I can take this opportunity to talk a little bit about that. And certainly, the refugee crisis in Western Europe has come up in many people's minds, particularly the, the leaders and the people living in Western European countries, as to whether or not immigration leads to a broader cultural shift. And possibly, yes, is the answer. Uh, But we always need to remember that with migration, antagonism toward it or support for it doesn't really fall along the traditional left-right line of the political spectrum. You know, on the right, we have a lot of pro-business interests that are often open to migration, and we have a lot of nativist sentiments. And on the left, we have a lot of focus on human rights and the importance of treating everyone equally, so allowing immigrants, but also a lot of unions that tend to be close to that. And that actually bodes for a future where we could expect to see more migration because it doesn't follow along that traditional left-right line. And so I, I would say that we should expect lots of cultural shifts in the future, I mean, including in this country as well. That is likely to happen.
3: Maybe just to tag on to that, I think on, I think on top of what you're seeing with migration is this technology-enabled kind of connectivity that's happening with social media today. And I think as we try to understand it, It's changing. And so it's hard to draw definite conclusions, except that I think it is fair to say that we are seeing ways that people are connecting and cultures are building that (laughs) that don't reflect geography and national boundaries. And I think those are very interesting challenges for, again, all the traditional institutional ways we have of thinking about security.
4: Yeah. I mean, one of the ways, or two ways, one of the ways in which um, there's a, a sort of threat in front of us is not continuing to recognize that there are cultures as well as culture so that has actually it sounds simple and everybody gets that but it has been a kind of smack in the face for the past maybe since the end of the Cold War um, that there are cultures that they're hybrid that they change and then and your question also triggered and so did your answers um, thoughts about we probably haven't thought our last about the way in which states and many kinds of non-state actors, yes, businesses, right. individuals, yeah, right. interact yeah. and are shaping new cultural ground together.
5: So, so what I heard is how, in the future, people will self-select in different ways, maybe not around uh, religion, culture, political. Um, is, is, that, is that what I heard? And, and what are the implications there from a national security
0: I don't know that I would say that. I would say they probably will keep selecting that way. Yeah. Oh, so say more. Well, I I don't see any, where are the signs that people no longer think along those lines? I mean, certainly they don't think along age lines, and that's one of the things, you know, if we look at, um, I did a study many years ago about Germany and whether or not having an an older population there would lead to what we call a gerontocracy, the rule by older people. And when you study the voting patterns, People don't identify by age. There's not a lot of people saying, I'm so old and I want all my friends to be old and that's our political identity. Rather, (laughs) surprise, rather they identify by region, regional identity. And so if you look at an 80-year-old in Bavaria, they have much more in common with a 16-year-old in Bavaria than an 80-year-old in former East Germany. And so I don't really see any signs that, that people are starting to come up with these new ways of, Identifying with one another beyond culture, but that's not also not really my expertise as as on cultural studies.
4: Maybe it's interesting, yeah. I mean, there are, for example, I was very excited when I discovered something called the X class 25, 30 years ago. The idea that it doesn't matter so much, but I mean, there are global communities of people who, to your point, can find each other much more easily than they used to be able to. So, whether there's the people who love pictures of their cat on the internet, but there's also um, people who care about rainforests. Um, so that is one way in which community forms and then, as we now know, goes off and online. It's not even
3: that anymore. It's and I think you can have multiple identities, right, and multiple community identities. I'm also informed by having spent half of my professional life in Silicon Valley where, I I I was always struck when my friends and colleagues would talk about being a citizen of the world, and and I I have to say I felt that they took a lot for granted when they said that. Uh, Similarly, I hear conversations in Washington that I think don't fully appreciate what's happening with business and the tech explosion that's going on. So, so I see these strains. And you know, somehow, we, we, while all of that's going on, we absolutely still have key national interests. And, and figuring out how to navigate that, I think, is, it's, it's, it's a more complex situation than we have. You know, it's not the 50s anymore.
5: Wonderful. What about the audience? Are there questions from the audience? Yes, you in the front. Thanks a lot. Hi, I'm Paula Stern.
6: I'm a member of the Executive Council of the Atlantic Council. And uh, thrilled and proud of of the Atlantic Council that we have a panel started off 100% female. Um, And I would like to ask the question, since we've talked about ageism, to ask you to imagine a world in which females were participating in creating uh, software and hardware in information technology and in computing science, um, to uh, uh, in a full and fulsome way, how would our creative output uh, be different if there was uh, equal parity participation in creating? technology. I'm looking particularly at our esteemed <laughs> head of, of DARPA. And I yeah, have to admit, I, I'm I doing think, this because I work very closely with the National Center for Women in Information Technology. Yeah. And I'd like to hear how we would imagine that world.
3: Yeah, I, I don't know how to imagine that world, partly because I think I, clearly women do participate in building software and hardware, clearly not at the, at the levels that reflect the rest of society. Um, but I, I'm also loath to uh, make up a story about, talk about frames, right, Amy? I mean, I think we have these frames about, well, women will do it this way. And I'd like to just find out, because I Me think the, the possibilities are, are open. Well,
6: we talked about ageism,
5: so I thought we would put the gender yeah. uh, frame in there, too.
7: Mm-hmm. The gentleman over here. <coughs> Some I'm Randall Fort with Raytheon. Um, Dr. Prabhakar, you talked about how it's not just technology, but how it's being used in different ways. I was struck by something um, Ms. Allman said about radical restructuring. So do we need perhaps in DARPA, or somewhere, but since you can do projects, quote unquote, to start looking at how this technology should be used for governance, for decision making. Last couple of weeks, we've had these articles about the NSC, which is firmly mired in the 1950s and the way they Uh, do things let's hire a lot more people and somehow that'll be more efficient instead of really doing research on how this technology could be used to leverage things speed up cycle times uh, be more proactive and so forth so is there a role for DARPA to start thinking about how do we use this technology not just for the technology's sake but actually start to bake it into the decision making the operations um, leadership and so forth
3: A couple of thoughts, you know, when Amy was talking about uh, rethinking organizations and long-term incentives, I actually think one of the reasons that DARPA has has been permitted to succeed over nearly six decades is that we are given the room to, to have big ambitions, to take risks, to fail to get up and try again and to operate on a project basis, as you emphasized. Uh, and, and so I know that that kind, and, and, the, you know, and the fact that we've been able to adapt over six decades as the world has changed, I think, is a reflection of the room that we get in the department with Congress both sides of the aisle and, and the support across <laughs> many, many administrations. But uh, to me, that's an important existence proof that you can do some of the kinds of things that we were talking about today. Um, the specific question, I think the, what's behind your specific question is the question of whether we can use some of these advances in technology to not just think about military systems in the classic sense, but maybe about how we interact with each other, how we understand each other, how we deal with the seemingly infinite amount of information that's coming at us in this changing world. And and I think those are very deep and very important questions. They are not the questions that tend to be on the forefront or front of mind for our colleagues in the Pentagon. But part of the reason you have a DARPA is precisely to ask those questions. An example of uh, some work that we're doing that, that that is not yet going to solve with a magic wand the problems that we're raising today, but I hope will have huge implications for the future. We just launched a basic research program called Next Generation Social Science. And it's essentially asking the question of the research community as to whether we can create new tools, new methodologies to to wrangle some of the problems of social science that have been intractable when we only had sort of simple methods. Uh, The question we're asking now is with uh, the online communities, the online uh, gaming and experimentation platforms that exist, can we come up with ways to to understand social behavior in, in new ways that would be reproducible, extensible to new populations, replicable, uh, and, and can, we've chosen to focus in that case with the first sample question of the question of the factors that drive collective identity formation, a question that's important for lots of, lots of reasons, including big national security reasons. <coughs> so that's a, that's a small seed that we have planted, but my hope is that over time it will bring us some insights that will help with the kinds of issues that you're raising.
5: Wonderful, what about this side? Yes, the gentleman in the back.
8: Good morning. My name is Greg Schuckman. I'm from the University of Central Florida. With respect to the cognitive decline question about the older folks, I may not have the skill set of the kids that are a generation younger than me, but I like to think that I have the wisdom to frame the questions and the situation that those kids can figure out. So that's how I look at things now. Um, Dr. Berbacher, the, the question about big data has come up many times. And what you can do and what you might be able to facilitate through DARPA and through the Department of Defense to help some of the other agencies, like NIH. And so solving some of those questions about, for example, with MS, where the populations are coming from and what are the different symptoms, because they don't know what causes it, so they don't know how to cure it, but using big data, they might be able to to come up with some more questions. In terms of being able to do the environmental scanning that the program managers have to do, they go to their professional conferences, they read the journals, but they can't possibly know everything that's out there. But big data could allow them to scan all of the proposals that are coming to the federal government in one specific area, in directed energy, for example, and be able to grab those people and those research projects that they wouldn't have known about. Are those the kinds of things that that you're thinking about or that you think DARPA should be
3: thinking about? DARPA is doing quite a lot in, in data, big data and data analytics. Uh, what I find with big data, uh, my Silicon Valley friends like to say big data's the whole deal now and more data is always better. I like to tell them I, that's not necessarily true. More data could just mean that you have so much data that whatever hypothesis you have, you can find something that supports it. And, and so I think getting at the meaning in data and not falling into the traps of false correlations, for example, those are gonna be some of the foundational issues Uh, very similar to what I was trying to say about artificial intelligence, you want to embrace the power of these new technologies but be completely clear-eyed about what their limitations are so that they don't mislead us. Um, And and I think the second half of your question comes back to what, to me, is the the central idea. Uh, I certainly have program managers who are experimenting with new ways of seeing what's happening in the research arena because exactly to your point is you can't you know there are only 24 hours in a day you can't talk to enough people to, to, to understand and to be exposed to everything to synthesize everything on the other hand it's hard for me to exa- imagine a future and i've got a pretty good imagination but i'm having trouble imagining a future where a machine just sort of tells us what the right thing is to do so it keeps coming back to this synthesis of what humans <laughs> And the, the insight that humans can bring, aided by machines that are able to, to digest and start building causal models and to give us hypotheses to start exploring the vastness of the space we're in.
5: So I, I want to um, pull Jennifer and Amy into this, this discussion here, too, because you know we're hearing a lot about the technology, <coughs> and the technology is it's explosive, and it's fast, and, and it's, it's going to be everywhere. How does this... How does this change? Because I I hear that people aren't going to change, and I just, I really have a hard time thinking that we're not going to change. Um, What does the next 20, 30 years look like from a people, people empowerment? What does that look like? And i want to pull you two into the discussion here. Well,
4: look at, to um, go back to the question about gender, the way in which our conceptions of gender itself are changing. So, in order to, to sort of think about, I'm just returning to this question how might women in software, um, women in IT do things or do things differently? The same question is asked in leadership. Um, one answer would be we have to think about how we think about gender and gender systems. So, just an example of a place where culture is changing quite
0: radically under our noses. Um, Jennifer? I would say who's the we in this? So you are going to talk about technology. Some of your most basic technology would be reproductive technology. And the rates of contraceptive usage in a place like Chad are 3%, 3% of the population using modern contraception. So if we want to talk about technological changes and want to say we, then we're talking about a really small subset of the world, or even within the world, a really small subset of the populations in those countries, the elites. And so for so many places on the planet, we don't even have that, the use of basic reproductive technology to help women um, you know, have the, their desired family size. And then in other places like Nigeria, a high proportion of women do not want to use those technologies. And so uh, you know, I think we just really need to be careful when we try to make broad generalizations about technology in the world, realize it doesn't really apply to a huge portion of the world's population.
5: Wonderful. What about you in the front?
0: Uh, this is Joshua Corman. I'm running the Cyber Statecraft Initiative for Atlantic Council. I'm still processing your uh, demogra- demography and the age distribution, and I'm finding tension with a, a different truth, which is that with cybersecurity, with some of the post nationals like Anonymous and Hacktivists, very, very small numbers with the desire and capability, the means, motive, and opportunity to assert their will on others. So while we tend to look for the large broad brushstrokes, the macros, and, and the, the, the tallest parts of our bar charts. Is there equal interest in investigation in, in the asymmetry of the edges? Well, I mean, I think we really just are, at, at the end of the day, talking about two very different things. So, people from this realm that you speak of, they could come from anywhere in this world, uh, anywhere in this over seven billion people, and there's not really all that much about demographics that could point us to that, unless you want to talk about people who are left out. And so that perhaps would be the area in which to focus. And some of that has been done in the research that focuses on youth and youth bulges, because what we're interested in that is actually um, relative position in society. We talk about a society that has up to a million new entrants into the labor market each year but it's too expensive to get married, so they're kind of excluded from that social realm, or it's, there are not enough jobs for people, or they don't have a voice in their society, then that's a great indicator for us that there would be some people that just feel disenfranchised, and then if they have the skills and the ability and the opportunity to act out in the cyber realm, then that might be a place where those two things could come together.
5: What about this side of the room? Gentlemen, way over here.
9: Morrison. I'm a consultant here, and I'd, I'd like to pull on this thread of technology and technology and demographics, and pause it um, to focus more succinctly, I guess, on decision making. One of the comments was that we don't expect machines to make necessarily all those decisions for us. In the past, especially in my background in the military, um, your decision-making is based on your exponential experience. So the more experience you have, the more informed your decisions tend to be. Granted, you can have some biases, but how do you see the technology influencing uh, that decision-making training, if you will? In other words, how do you get more repetition so that it doesn't take you... um, 35 years to uh, reach a certain level and then you become a member as someone over there I think said the NSC because they've got 400 people and you, know, you have to have all of that experience. How do you get someone that maybe is from a demographic standpoint maybe is 25 but has the experiential uh, development through technology and learning that that someone in the past who who may have spent a career in other fields? I hope I'm kind of clear on that. In other words, influence of technology on the demographics and in the training of our decision makers, if you will, so that they can make better informed decisions.
0: You want me for, is that a good one for you?
4: <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure of the, I mean, to, I wasn't sure where the, what prompted the question. What is, is it that there are too many 25 year olds without jobs? Or, I mean, what, what's prompting the desire for that kind of, um, that version of efficiency?
9: If you have, as our demographics change, you're going to have more mm-hmm. complex challenges that our decision makers are gonna to have to face. Mm-hmm. And if, in the past, you've relied on what I might call an analog experience in other words you've gone through so many iterations in your career i spent 25 years in the army much of that was built in an analog context you don't have that same opportunity today that uh, a decision maker may have two or three years of actual physical experience but how do you get that 20 years of experience in that individual so they can make better informed agile, flexible responses to the complex challenges they have.
4: My immediate answer to that is things like this. This has less to do with technology than it does with developing a culture um, that values certain ways of thinking and imagining um, and perhaps to something else that is uh, around us all the time, which is thinking about how people work in groups. And what kinds of skill sets and differences put together can um, create more than the sum of their parts when you put people together. And then third, there's probably a technological component for some of the informational or or, or kind of um, data crunching um, that speeds people along.
0: But that's my answer.
4: M- multiple answers.
0: I think we also need to look at higher ed. I mean, certainly that's a that's an area that I'm I'm involved in. I've been at Rhodes for eight years, and um, you know we need to ask ourselves all the time why we have this divide between policy and academia. It's very much there and I have some opinions on that and then we also need to ask how we are training our students and so I don't hardly think that I could find a colleague who would use the phrase training our students and that's just something you wouldn't say in academia but I see it that way. I mean, what kind of skills are we teaching students? There tends to be an impression that all 20 somethings have these amazing technological skills. Well, I will tell you, the number of students who still lose a paper miraculously the night before a deadline (laughs) is tremendous. And I say, have you heard of the cloud? So be careful not to assume that all 20-somethings have these amazing technological skills. In fact, I've seen much more. Barry's a great example. Barry loves the Snapchat. And so this is, you know, you can have these great uh, skills in technology at all sorts of ages. And so, you know, what are we using higher ed for? Do we see connections with teaching a student how to write a Policy memo, for example, Um, basic fundamentals of how to read with some sense of analysis, and also maybe how to use Twitter or save things in the cloud.
5: Wonderful. This lady over here,
10: Tara. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Francis uh, Cook, the Ballard Group. I want to get back to a question and and to the town where we all uh, operate here, Washington, to get a little political with you all, if I may, and thank you for a terrific panel. I spent some time in Silicon Valley about 18 months ago, and I found them absolutely unwilling and almost oblivious to the political implications of what they had released with social media. Um, At that point, when I was out there, ISIS was basically beating us with our own weapon. I think we're doing better now. and I. Thanks, Secretary Carter and Secretary Clinton for forcing Silicon Valley to look at the political implications of some of the things they've made available. Um, Jennifer talked about the demography, what's going on in Europe, and how small the immigration numbers were, which was interesting to me. Uh, but the political implications of, the, of what's happening in Europe are really quite frightening. If you look at the, this very powerful rise of the right in Austria, Germany, France, and so forth, I guess I'd like to, if we're moving to an era where the machines are going to do the thinking, it seems to me that politics, are going to be even more lost than that. And it's a little kind of frightening to me, uh, a future where we have trouble now getting the young technology people to think of the political implications of some of the things they're doing. And I, I would like you all just to reflect on that. You've mentioned politics fleetingly, but that's the, town we, that's the environment we operate in here. And there's huge political implications for everything that each of you have said today. So if you just reflect on that for me, I would find it very interesting. Thank you.
3: Five in.
0: Well, certainly I think with Europe, um, I've thought a lot about if I'm still teaching intro to international relations in 20 years, I hope I am, what will I be saying about the European Union? And I think this is where the, the debates on migration are just one of the types of debates that are happening among members of the European Union today. But demographics has a way of highlighting fractures that already exist in societies. It really it points you towards the... Coming back to those essential identities that we discussed a minute ago. And so that is where we see a lot of the rise of the far right in Europe. They're able through their political institutions, through a multi party system, which allows for groups of like minded people to rise to power, to, to have a political voice for that. But they're not the only voice in society, and that's where part of these fractures come from. So within countries, there are fractures. And then w- among members of the European Union, there are fractures as well. And so I think. Um, Even though the numbers may be small, the perception is large. And there's, I think it was Pew Research Center, they do just such amazing work in this. And they recently had a graphic out where they asked people in different countries what percentage of their population do they think is Muslim. And in France, it was around, people responded, we think it's about 34%. Well, no. It's really much smaller than that, maybe around 8%. And so it's often the numbers themselves don't really matter, but the perception of those numbers matters so much more. And that's the interesting questions. you know. And I am a political scientist. And so for me, you've hit the nail on the head that that's where we need to, to do more research. I
4: think your comment is incredibly salient. You're making me think of um, when, I, when I taught at the National War College, we used to talk about public and private sector. Um, you know, partnerships and, and students would say, well, we'll just go get we'll just go get the private sector without fully taking in that they have agency and goals and objectives of their own. So to me, one government and the idea of governance needs a massive public relations campaign so that people recognize that that's who's picking up their garbage in the morning and so forth. And second, again, sort of all the thinking that's been done about the future of governance um, and how these relations are going to shift. It can't just be that government plays the silent hand um, while technology and the private sector get all the credit and other rewards. So just salient to my point, my, my view.
5: So unfortunately, we're coming to, uh, coming to an end here. I've got uh, one more question for each one of you um, ladies here. and. Uh, now, what are you most hopeful for the future and what is the one thing that you would ask people to take away here to go back into their organizations to do to, to shape that, that future? Let's start with you, Amy. Um,
4: well, this is hopeful and um, I guess to not be fearful. Individuals don't feel fearful. but when it gets to the organizational level, we do seem to be dominated by um, fear a lot of the time. And there's a lot to be curious about and interested in before getting fearful and threat minded about it.
0: Uh, I'm most hopeful for the actual demographic transition. I do think that uh, everywhere from the household level to the societal level, Giving women the ability to have a smaller family if they choose to do so is a really positive thing because it allows you to have a greater investment in each child and that trickles up to societal levels as well. Um, and I would ask everybody here to dig deeper and just be careful when we take these numbers at face value and of course always call resident political scientists you know, for, <laughs> for any analysis.
3: I am part of the was it two or three percent of people uh-huh. who have uh, who don't live where they were born. My family came here when I was uh, three from India, and so I uh, I think when I think about what I'm hopeful about, I'm hopeful about America's optimism and uh, the fact that I, I I just think that when we are confronted with problems, when we finally realize that we are going to have to do something about it, we are very 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 good at doing something about it. And so I remain an optimist um, in terms of something to take back. One thing I find uh, is that everything about um, leaders and organizations somehow drives them to believe that if something is important, they need to control it. And I think it's an urge we need to resist. Um, In fact, if it's really important, I think you should practice letting go and letting the people in your organization run hard and fast because that is probably the best way to get things done.
5: That's wonderful, that's wonderful. Well, I want to, uh, to thank the Atlanta Council. I want to thank all of you here on this panel. It was fantastic. New ideas, um, the convergences and the impact are, are many and, and hopefully people will have a chance to, uh, to further the conversation here. So, so thank you very much. Thank
3: you.
2: I want to also thank the first panel. Can't think of a better way to have started our session here. Hopefully, you all have some uh, interesting ideas that we're going to follow up on. We're going to take a little bit of break. Uh, We haven't figured out an innovation for how to reset for new panels just yet. Uh, Next panel up will be challenges and opportunities for the United States, Uh, about a 15-minute break. And to encourage you not to go far, please take advantage in our uh, lobby. We have a number of folks and a number of exhibits from our Art of the Future uh, project. Uh, You heard Governor Huntsman talk about it really about trying to imagine the future and imagine solutions to the future. There is a break room over to the side here that you should feel free to use if you need to use uh, Wi-Fi or you need a place uh, to sit. And we will call you back in here uh, in about 15 minutes for the next uh, session. Those of you online can't see uh, the exhibits, that's why you should be here. Uh, Hopefully you'll come join us uh, next time around.
0: Thank you for listening to the Atlantic Council Events Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at AtlanticCouncil.org. And follow us on Twitter at Atlantic Council. The Atlantic Council, working together to secure the future.